Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Deborah Spar. Deborah is Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School and Senior Associate Dean of Harvard Business School Online. Her current research focuses on issues of gender and technology and the interplay between technological change and broader social structures. She previously served as the president of Barnard College and as president and CEO of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Welcome, Deborah. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this should be good. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about her new book, Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. Very interesting topic. And actually, it goes deeper than machines. More about technologies more generally and how technologies interact with culture and, in fact, serve as a catalyst to pull culture forward uh, in response to technology. And, of course, it probably works the other way around, too. Uh, in fact, uh, your first big transition, the one you talk about, has very little to do with machines, maybe a little bit, and that's the adoption of agriculture and settled life. So let's start with talking about foragers, what we transition from, and their transition to agriculture. Yeah, so it's it's very funny today in the 21st century to think about agriculture as a technology. Uh, But what I argue in the book and what many people before me have argued is that really the world's first great technological revolution was the agricultural revolution. We humans lived for hundreds and thousands of years as hunters and gatherers, and our technology was limited to very crude things like baskets to carry food and and maybe some kind of basic axe to to hit things. But around 6,000 BC, people don't know exactly when, but roughly around that time, humankind invented agriculture. We figured out how to grow food rather than just find food. And that changed kind of everything we know about how we live as humans. And so I go all the way back to that revolution to try and and draw the patterns and see how we changed as people and as societies as a result of that technological revolution. And then I hope to take those learnings and apply them to the current day to say, huh, what's going to change as we go through a new revolution right now? Indeed. So what was uh, life like for the foragers? Well, of course, we don't know exactly, uh, but based on the archaeological record and the anthropological record, we know that people were nomads. They moved. There was no settled agriculture and there were no settled homes. Uh, You moved with the food you could find. You moved with the seasons. And we suspect strongly that people lived in tribes that there weren't things like the nuclear family as we think of it today, but instead the organizing principle was roughly 20 to 30 people who spent their lives together. We know, of course, that women bore the children and and took primary uh, responsibility for caring the children, but children were really raised by the village, by the tribe, and it doesn't appear that there was anything like monogamous marriage 
as we think of it right now. It wasn't even clear that men knew who their biological children were because, of course, the whole process of, of childbirth and certainly conception was quite mysterious. And if you look at sort of modern-day hunting-gathering tribes, of which there are still some in existence, that's how they live. And women in these tribes generally contribute at least 50% of the, of the calories, which of course in sort of more modern terms means that women were equal to men in terms of their economic contributions to the tribe. Uh, though there were gender divisions of labor. The simple-minded hunter and gatherer, but hunters versus gatherers, of course it wasn't as simple as that. No, that's right. Now there's a general sense that women were collecting the proverbial, you know, nuts and berries. They, they were picking up the smaller food, collecting fruit, and men were doing the larger game hunting. Although there's just last month, there was some discovery that suggested that women may have also participated in the large game hunt. But putting that aside for a second, yeah, it does, it does seem more that women were the gatherers, men were the hunters. But if you look at the diets of these people, again, both anthropological and archaeological, it seems that the bulk of calories were actually provided by the fruits and the, and the nuts. And the, the large game, of course, was rarer. Of course, that varied tremendously by location. Absolutely. I did just a little bit of research on that question uh, for this uh, show. And one of the things I discovered was uh, that they found that the division of labor uh, tended to be stronger where the environment was less rich, where it was harder to make a living. The gender division was uh, larger. And also, interestingly, don't know why, uh, by latitude, the farther north you were, uh, the more likely there was to be a starker division of labor. Yeah, and that makes sense because if you think about what life would have been like in a very fertile part of the world, there were a lot of things that grew easily. There were figs on the trees and there were shellfish that could be easily captured. But if you think about what life was like on the Siberian tundra, there wasn't a lot of food growing there. And so you would have to be hunting the, the local woolly mammoth. And that, that, of course, was a job that just demanded an awful lot of physical strength and also being uh, farther away from the tribe for longer periods of time. So it makes sense that you'd have a starker division of labor there along gender lines. The other interesting thing about forager bands, uh, which has really come to the fore over the last 20 years, is they weren't necessarily tight kinship groups, uh, you know, something like nuclear families or temporarily bonded uh, men and women and a, and a passel of children move between bands fairly regularly for all kinds of reasons. They got in arguments with people. They got kicked out. Uh, they got lost while they're on their way from point A to point B. And uh, when uh, the archaeologists have looked at the relatedness, now that we can do DNA studies on bones and such, uh, of course they were more related than randomly, but they were not nearly as related as happened later in history uh, when very rigid uh, kinship groups formed, especially once we were settled on the land. And that had some interesting uh, impact probably on how things like mating and family uh, evolved. Right. And we don't know, or at least I have not seen the research. But it seems that there may have been some sense, even if people didn't understand the underlying biology, that you couldn't keep producing babies within one small group of, of humans, that, that children were healthier if you know people also had babies outside of a, a small band. So yeah, there was, there was mixing in between these groups. We don't know exactly how the networks formed. But one thing I think we do know is that the tribe, the band, was the dominant form of social organization. And so what we think of as traditional, the, the small nuclear family, in historical terms, isn't traditional at all. It's very, very modern. And the other, you know, the other thing I always 
try to reinforce for people here is a concept of in the state of nature of a solitary human makes no sense at all. I mean, you would basically die quickly. Yeah, that, that's been a metaphor for a long time. <laughs> a useful metaphor, perhaps, but a metaphor nevertheless. Yeah, you know, guys like Rousseau and Hobbes and, you know, their theories of the state of nature of everybody being solitary and then coming together and making a social contract. It didn't happen that way, people. No, it's, in fact, it's funny that you mentioned that I'm, I'm teaching a class today at Harvard Business School on capitalism and the state, and we are actually exploring different conceptions of the state of nature. So it's still relevant in its own strange ways. I think it's actually very important for people to, you know, really understand a little bit about uh, what the forager world was like, because as you pointed out, uh, that's how we live for, oh, probably 95% of our existence as homo sapiens. Exactly. Exactly. So settled agriculture, you know, was invented somewhere probably in the Middle East. What changed there? Well, kind of everything. And that that's one of the points I really try and, and stress in this book is moving from the hunting, gathering, foraging culture to the agricultural culture may have been the single largest change that humans have gone through uh, because everything changes as a result. So people settle down. They're not moving anymore. As Marx and Lenin pointed out, one of the first things that happens as a result of this is you need to develop private property. Because when you're, when you're hunting and gathering, you don't have a lot of stuff. In fact, you don't want a lot of stuff because you have to carry it with you. So people had no possessions, very, very minor few. But once you move to agriculture, you need what I always just casually refer to as stuff. You need storage bins. You need places to store your seeds. You need implements to farm. You need to hold on to the crops that you grow because they don't grow all times of the year. You need dwellings. And so you develop private property, and then you start to develop towns and villages. Governments occur as a result. You don't, you don't need governments when you're, when you're moving with a band of 20 or 30 people. But once you're, you're settled with property that has to be protected, you need governments. You need states. War emerges as a result of settled agriculture. Slavery emerges as a result of settled agriculture. And crucially for my argument, marriage emerges, or certainly much more permanent unions become the dominant social structure rather than these much more sort of passing, you know, amorphous relationships that predominated in the earlier period. So kind of everything changes. And I really focus not so much on the government piece of this, but on what what happens to change in terms of the family structure. Yeah. Then as you talk about, and as other people before you've talked about, you know, the idea that uh, there's now property worth worrying about and uh, passing on to the next generation. Uh, you know, I recently did my once every 10 years of uh, reading the Pentateuch, the first five uh, books of the Old Testament. Plus, I always read Joshua. As I say, no point in hearing the joke without getting the punchline, right? <laughs> I'll to try that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just a huge amount of uh, concern about the property and the family and making sure the property stays in the family and those damn Canaanites don't get on the property and all that stuff. And a uh, huge, huge, uh, you know, motivation for people of, of those years. And actually the Israelites weren't actually dirt farmers so much as they were herders, right? 
they had a huge, uh, huge sense of ownership of the land. Uh, and then with that came, you know, uh, my property, my cow, my slaves, and then unfortunately, my women. Yes. And it's, you know, I'm always careful not to use the, the Old Testament completely as a historical source, but it's fascinating to look at it as at least a quasi-historical source. Because if you, if you read the Old Testament with the lens I'm bringing to it, you really see it as an exercise in genealogy and to some extent in real estate. You know, it's very clear that in laying out, you know, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. It's laying out who is whose child, particularly who is whose son. And that was crucial at the moment in history in which the Bible emerged because you are seeing kind of the later stages of the agricultural revolution when people have property, they have their cows and their goats and their sheep. They want to pass them to their children particularly their sons. And that's where women become so important because whereas in the the older world, in the world of the hunters and gatherers, women were valuable as producers of food. Once you move to the agricultural world, women's value becomes primarily that of producers of children. Because once you have land and once you rely on that land for your food source, you need labor. And in 4000 BC, the only way to get labor was either by stealing it, which was slavery, or by producing it, which is childbirth. And so women had to be protected because they were the ones who, who produced the children. And the way the history evolved, and perhaps it could have gone the other way, but it didn't, is that the men of the tribe controlled the women because they needed to ensure that the women produced children and critically that the men knew who those children belonged to. Yeah, and that's when the concept of virginity and sexual fidelity, uh, et cetera, uh, really became the organizing system. I mean, again, going back to the Old Testament, you know, all those Leviticus injunctions against uh, fooling around. I mean, you're talking about death penalties. No, absolutely. And, you know, again, it seems you know, horrible and, and barbaric to our ears today, <laughs> and it was, but this was a crucial part of the social structure, that men had to know who their children were, and the only way to do that was for a man to marry a woman who had been certified as a virgin and to ensure that she never had sex with anyone else again. And with apologies, that's really what the marriage ceremony is about. I mean, even if you go to a traditional marriage today, you hear echoes of that. It's the father who gives his daughter away. I mean, we still use those words. He is, in the older form, testifying that she's a virgin, thus the origins of the white wedding. And the woman is, is pledging fidelity to her husband with the hopes that they shall be fruitful and multiply. So this is essentially a production agreement. And we have, in more contemporary terms, we've dressed it up with a lot of romance. Um, but that at its origins, the marriage ceremony is, is a production arrangement attached to a real estate deal. A good way to cook it down. Loses a little bit of the romance there. And I, I say this, I always have to caveat is I say this as someone who's been very happily married for 33 years. So this is, this is not designed as an indictment of marriage. It's just kind of, if you look at the history, this is where it came from. And uh, this June, it'll be 40 years for my wife and I. Mazel tov. It is possible, people. <laughs> uh, one point you make, uh, and you've alluded to, but uh, that children not only became much more valuable in the agricultural world, but children were problematic in the forager world. You had to carry them. You, know, you had typically breastfed them for a long time. 
Yeah, and I'm, I apologize. I didn't I didn't check this piece of data before we we got on this podcast. But there have been studies done of how many miles women walked carrying children uh, while they were foraging, and it's some horrifying number, like fifty thousand miles over the course of five years of a child's life. I mean, this was hard labor. Putting the actual you know birth labor aside, that after you gave birth to a child, a woman had to carry that that child with her for years and years and miles and miles. And women, as a result, had very few children. And this is where, the again, the archaeological record is pretty clear, that women in the, the foraging era, in the pre-Neolithic era, only had two or three children because that was all their bodies could handle. You, could, you couldn't have, you know, two toddlers simultaneously. You just, you know, they would die or the woman would die. And so it's really once you move to settled agriculture that that's the point at which children become valuable rather than, burdensome, again, in purely economic terms, and you start to see fertility rates for women soar. And then you mentioned this, uh, while the there does appear to be war with the uh, at the forager level, still some argument about different schools of archaeologists and anthropologists, uh, war really came to the fore, though, with settled architect, uh, arc, uh, agriculture. It really came to the fore with settled ar- agriculture. Uh, you know, we can even see it in the uh, genetic records, uh, for instance, the Vikings, where they came to grab land, they also uh, came with their genetics. And you find that north of England, for instance, uh, there's a lot of Viking uh, heritage that came in through the male line, not the female line. And the same is true if you go back further, uh, you know, the spread of the agriculturalists from the Middle East into Europe, uh, there's a predominance of the male lines uh, that uh, were injected into the local populations. Uh, and so there was basically a combination of a war for land and women. Come in, grab the land, kill the men, keep the women. Right. No, women Women were the spoils of war. Uh, women and children. Uh, ch- children because they, they were a labor force and women because they produced the labor force. Um, again, it seems you know, cruel and harsh to say that, but it's what the historical record suggests. Women, women and children were valuable purely in economic terms. And then we also found a lot, particularly uh, in the cultures that came from the Middle East, but also uh, further east, strong kinship relationship. We, you know, we talked earlier about the forager bands had some relationships on them, but it wasn't nearly as stark as, say, a classic Middle Eastern village where everybody marries their first cousin for generation after generation. Yeah. And again, that has so much to do with property and particularly property and land. Because again, when you go back to the hunters and gatherers, nobody owns any land. Once you not only own land, but you rely on that land, you, you know, you're going to starve without crops, right? This, this was still a barely above subsistence existence for the vast majority of, of humankind. And so you desperately need that land. You need that land to survive, uh, to produce for, for the future. And so you kind of have to be warlike. Um, because you're going to steal the other guy's land if yours isn't productive. And, you know, if you if your land is stolen, you're going to go to war to protect it or to try and get some back. I'm not sure that's, that people became more aggressive once we moved to settled agriculture. It's that settled agriculture kind of gives you things that you now have to protect, and that leads to war. You can protect and you can steal, right? The two go together. If no one's trying to steal, you don't need to protect. So the, the two, unfortunately, kind of co-evolve each other culturally. Another interesting thing from that era is uh, in the agricultural uh, revolution and on forward for several thousand years, polygyny became very common, essentially ubiquitous. 
Yeah. And it again, it, it sort of makes sense in economic terms that if men's wealth was related to how many children they had and how much labor, you know, how much labor those children could provide to farm the lands. A man's going to want to have as many children as possible, and because of any any woman can only produce so many children, the more wives he has, the more children he has, and so you 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 get these you know these historical figures who may be you know somewhat allegorical, but you know King David had hundreds of children, uh, various other medieval. Uh, rulers had had harems, which were, you know, at some point people, a small number of people became wealthy enough that, that children became a sign of, of wealth rather than actual laborers. But you counted a person's wealth, a man's wealth, by uh, how many children and, and cows he had. Children, cows, and wives, I should say. Back to the theme of how technology in some ways forms this, you talk a little bit about the distinction between the plow and the hoe. Yeah, so this is some really interesting research that uh, my deceased uh, colleague Alberto Alessina did over a large chunk of his life, was looking at the difference between cultures that developed hoe-based agriculture and those that developed plow-based agriculture. Plow, it tends to give you higher yields, it's more sophisticated technology, but it also it, it correlates very heavily with more gender-divided societies. So to make a lot of complicated research super straightforward, once societies develop the plow, uh, they tend to treat women worse. Women have less power in societies with the plow than they did in societies with that never developed the plow and sort of stuck with, with the simpler hoe-based agriculture. And you can see that particularly in Africa, where the plow was um, only developed in, in sort of cer- certain pockets of the continent. It's also worth noting that the plow is an old world phenomenon. The plow didn't exist in the new world. No, that's right. And that's, I mean, I don't want to take the argument too far, but it's quite interesting if you if you look at uh, the Native American populations, where many people now sort of cite as examples of female empowerment and matriarchies, those were societies that didn't develop the plow. They, they never had plow-based agriculture. Yeah, and I think this you know comes into this theme, the theme that I extracted. Uh, I hope it's the theme you put in the book, which is this interesting loop between the evolution of technology and the evolution of culture. Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's that's really the sort of the, the central loop of the book. I don't want to be completely technologically deterministic, although I'm largely technologically deterministic. I, I think many many aspects of culture you know, how we form our families, how we form our governments, how often we go to war, they're not baked in our human psyches so much as they are a response to the technology that prevails at any moment in time. So as our technology changes, it's not overnight, it's, 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 there's certainly no instantaneous switch, but as technology changes, and particularly when technology goes through these, these seismic revolutionary shifts, our culture changes as a response. I want to go back to another topic we talked about briefly and go into a little bit more detail, which is this uh, ferocious emphasis on female virginity and sexual fidelity, uh, which is an interesting cultural adaptation that in some sense is partially in conflict with and somewhat in congruence with our underlying biological nature. Uh, you know, if you think about it from a game theoretic perspective, males want to impregnate as many women as possible, right? They just talk to a 19-year-old boy, right? 
while women want, one, the best quality mates, and two, a mate that will be a reliable provider. Uh, and as you point out in the book, and is less no, well known than it should be, is there's always many cryptic liaisons. You know, even today, five to ten percent of uh, married fathers aren't the actual biological father. So there's always this interesting arms race between biological imperative and cultural structures. You know, it's it's a core asymmetry. Uh, that's probably you know part biological, part cultural, and I'm sort of adding intent, a technology as an, if you will, an intermediating variable. But if, if we go back to your 19-year-old male, and we, we presume, as most people do, that, that men are biologically programmed in some way to want to produce as many children as possible, it makes sense for them to have sex with as many women as possible. It also makes sense in the period that we're talking about, the early Neolithic revolution, for them want to want to control the sexual practices of the women whom they are impregnating. So it's fine for men to have sex with as, as many women as possible. What they're also interested in, though, is making sure that those women don't have sex with anybody else. And that's where you see, as you, as you describe, this sort of you know, ferocious adoption of virginity to, to the point where in most of these um, sort of er, early Middle Eastern cultures, if a woman was caught having sex with, with a man other than her husband, she was stoned, she was killed, she was kicked out of the band, um, but, but this was a crime akin to death, whereas, whereas for man there was presumption that men could and should have sex uh, with, with large numbers of women. Yeah, and of course some of that exists today with the honor killings in the Mideast. Yeah, I mean, you're still seeing vestiges of these older cultures for sure. And of course, if you run the math, all this is incompatible. And of course, the result was a fairly substantial cadre of what we'd call today sex workers. Yes, and those those were again, as so far as we can tell from the historical record, prostitution was was. <laughs> truly the oldest profession. There was a lot of sex workers in, in these ancient cultures. And it, it makes sense, given what I've described. And there's that you can also see it a little bit running through uh, the Old Testament, in which ancient, ancient days, in the, the foraging days, it appears that most of the goddesses that people worshipped were female. They were sort of fertility goddesses. Um, but once you move into the Old Testament period, I mean, and you can see it in Genesis, um, the Israelites are, are told to give up their false idols. And those false idols were the goddesses, some of whom were sort of represented by the temple goddesses, which who also overlapped with, with prostitutes. So there's, there's this real separation of women into categories that there are the wives who are virtuous, you know, virgins until marriage, and then there's other women who cannot be worshipped and are treated and as prostitutes. Um, so you really see that that separation. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, you know, if you, if you sort of fast forward all the way to the Victorian period, you get this sort of creation of this the virtuous wife. Uh, you know, the virtuous wife is she who was, you know a mother who takes care of her husband, and that's her only role. And every everyone else is, uh, is a whore at some level. And, uh, you know, this influence of the patriarchal family, the ferocious emphasis on virginity, et cetera, reached one of its peaks with the Roman paterfamilias. Can you tell us a little bit about that role? Yeah, so so now we're sort of moving forward in time, you know, to a culture that is more familiar to most people because we all studied it in, you know, fourth grade or somewhere. But in that social structure, the man was the head of the household, the paterfamilias, 
he was the dominant citizen, you know, Athenian and then subsequently Roman democracy were sort of based around this, this figure. Um, he could have multiple wives. Um, he could also have multiple sexual partners who had some sort of formal characterization, um, but they were not wives. They were some sort of lesser women in the household, but they could be part of the household, as were the slaves. It, it's something, if you will, that's, you know, very much in between the ancient tribe and the modern nuclear family. You have a household structure. Uh, it's led by a man, um, but it has a number of people in sort of various other categories, and in, in many cases, including male sexual partners, um, of the paterfamilia as well. And of course, uh, the thing that was quite, made, well, I say it's kind of the pinnacle of this, is that the paterfamilias in law and custom had the right of life or death over everybody in his household. That's right. And again, you can see vestiges of that in, in some of our contemporary culture, although that's certainly no longer the law. You, you know, you can see it's almost a joke or a stereotype now. You know, I am the head of the household. Um, I am the patriarch. Uh, but in the in, back in Roman times, the patriarch did have as you say, the full power over everybody in that household. Now, I'm going to push back on one thing you said, which was that the Romans allowed multiple wives. Actually, they didn't, at least not all at one time. Uh, in fact, I, I believe it's one of the more important uh, evolutions in this realm is that started with the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks may have been the first peoples in the world who uh, at least legally uh, demanded monogamy, and that was picked up by the Romans. Even the emperors themselves, while they had many uh, girlfriends, concubines, boyfriends, etc., uh, they all adhered to the law of only one actual legitimate wife at a time. Yes, you're right, and thank and thank you for the. You're, you are right. There's a there's a single legal wife. Um, but there are other women, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. There was a Roman term for women who were part of the household, sexual partners, um, but they were not technically the wife. Though, of course, if we, you know we read our Roman history, we see that people were divorcing each other at a rather high rate, and in the later days, even the women could divorce the men, but only one at a time. And it, it, that turns out to be uh, you know somewhat important, uh, if only. And you talk about this later in in the context of. Uh, dating apps and things. And that is the issue of fairness of access to sex. It's thought that one of the reasons, or you know, who knows if it was the reason, but one of the effects of the Greek and Roman uh, one spouse at a time rules that it provided more egalitarian access to sex, more people having children and literally skin in the game. And there's uh, one theory uh, that that is uh, perhaps one of the main drivers for the superior Greek and Roman military capability because the soldiers were people who literally had skin in the game as opposed to people who had been shut out of the uh, out of access to sex. Right. Well, there's one other really important piece, and th this shows up later in the book when I talk about some of the reproductive technologies, we started to develop the idea of bastards. So the children of the legal wife were the man's legitimate children. Everybody else was a bastard. And that turns out, again, in quasi-Marxist terms, to be very useful in terms of protecting property. And you see this in the, the British system get carried sort of to an extreme around primogenitor. If you want to have a conservative system, conservative with a small C of preserving property rights, primogenitor makes it really clear who gets to um, inherit the property and who does not. And so you see the early days of that in the Roman system where only the children of the legal wife have inheritance rights. 
And it's interesting because it's uh, when you sort of think about it from a biological and game theoretical perspective, it's not entirely clear that it had to go that way, right? Because your illegitimate children have the same genetic heritage as your legitimate children. Right. But as an organizing principle, it's it's simpler, right? I mean, there's some who have theorized, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a theory that says that the British, who really, again, sort of brought this to its peak, they saw this system of primogenitor as not only preserving property in the hands of a relatively small elite, but also creating a class of sort of, if you will, biologically uh, sort of strong people who could become the merchants and the sailors and the, and the military men um, because they had to, because they weren't going to inherit the family property. Yep, indeed. And in fact, many of the uh, warrior leaders uh, were the second sons, etc. I mean, and you see it bizarrely still in the British monarchy, right? There's a, a, an heir and a spare. Only one person gets the inheritance and everybody else kind of has to come up with other stuff to do. Yeah, what a, what a weird uh, structure that is. It's interesting here in Virginia, one of the very first laws the Virginia uh, legislature passed after independence was banning primogeniture. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, now, it is interesting, uh, the county where we live in, which is very remote and uh, has its own folk ways, uh, here they have a, a variation on that, which is that typically one kid gets the farm, uh, but uh, the other kids get a mortgage back from that kid. That's why I was saying kind of the these trajectories got locked in as frozen accidents, but it didn't have to be that way. This other model uh, has worked here for a couple hundred years. Uh, unlike other areas of the Appalachian South, uh, the farms are still good size, big enough to make a living on because there's this uh, culture not enforced by law of uh, one kid gets the farm and the rest get a mortgage as opposed to lots of other places in Appalachia where they just keep subdividing the land, subdividing the land until there's 34 people living on an acre each in a trailer park. Yeah, no, you can see, I mean, how these, these things make sense, or at least they made sense in given a historical moment in time, particularly when you're talking about societies, as I imagine rural Virginia was until quite recently and may still be, where wealth is, is farmland. You know, wealth is not money in the bank, it's land. Yeah, even today, that's, I would say the bulk of people's wealth is in land. Uh, one other uh, bit before we move on a little bit is, uh, and you, you alluded to it in passing again, is how there was a gradual retreat uh, from the role of women as more or less equal producers away from that over time as the agricultural revolution proceeded. Yeah, I'm sure this happened over thousands of years, but looking back at it, it's really kind of a black and white shift where women were, as we talked about earlier, producing more than 50% of the calories, or at least, you know, around 50% of the calories to, if you think about, uh, you know, the Roman wife we were just describing, she wasn't producing anything but children, right? That, that became the predominant role for women. And, and when, I, when I talk about this research, particularly for, to women's audiences, I always get the question, and it's a good question, that at some level it's counterintuitive, right? If women are producing the single most important asset, which is children, how come they didn't get the power? And you could have imagined that going the other way, but it didn't. I mean, people can point to one or two sort of tiny, obscure tribes where it did go the other way. But in every other society we know, as they went through the agricultural revolution, women lost power. 
Men became the producers. Men became the economic breadwinners. Men had legal control over the women. And it emerges out of this change uh, that surrounded the agricultural revolution. May have had something to do with war, that war became so critical uh, in the agricultural period and men are better at war than women. No, or they got or they got stuck with that task, right? Because <laughs> women had to bear the children. Or maybe women were smarter, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but you definitely I think, you know, explaining exactly why is hard, but it you can't deny that that's just the way the power was rearranged as groups went through this change. Indeed. Well, let's now step ahead in time to uh, what you choose as the next big step. And it's interesting you did choose that. I I tend to do the same thing, which is uh, fossil fuels and steam power. Of course, truly, and and you allude to it, we have to put that in a little bit broader context of just the adoption of fossil fuels and steam. Uh, And in that broader context, in the West at least, uh, we had the adoption of real science and the roots of modern finance particularly with the establishment of the Bank of England in the 17th century. Of course, there was a smaller uh, water-powered technological revolution in the 17th century and early 18th century. But fossil fuels did change everything, and the steam engine uh, is a good exclamation point for this inflection in history. Uh, So what happened with uh, fossil fuels and steam? Yeah, so so let me just go back to, to the first part of what you just said. So there for sure was important, albeit slow, technological change throughout the long Middle Ages and then sort of picking up uh, around the Renaissance. So, you know, we developed windmills and water power. We started to figure out banking and the power of compounded interest. So it wasn't like the steam engine sort of happened overnight, but I chose the development of the steam engine as sort of the, the real exclamation point, if you will, that catalyze the industrial revolution because once you get the steam engine the pace of change just explodes and you know of course none of us have lived through it but you can really start to imagine what this felt like whereas the agricultural revolution it was you know it was long and it was slow and we you know we can only guess at what it felt like but you can imagine you know a person living in rural england in you know 17 you know, who would have been born in 1740. Um, they lived a particular way of life that was exactly or very similar to their grandparents and the grandparents before them. And then all of a sudden, in the, you know, in literally in a period of less than a decade, they saw change. They, they saw railroads. They saw factories. They saw their world change. And what I'm fascinated with, although I didn't write about it so much, is I think it was during this period of time in the early days of the Industrial Revolution that the whole idea of the future becomes a thing. Like up until that point, you don't even really see people talking about the future because the future is just not going to be all that different from the past. But the Industrial Revolution changes that. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole chain of events, you know, starting in the factories of, of, of England that kind of change everything about the world as, as we now know it. Indeed. Yeah. The idea of progress, uh, one could say, was invented about that time. And, uh, you know, what we think of it you know, as part of the uh, Enlightenment in particular. But again, all this happened in the late 17th uh, through the end of the 18th century. Now, the system uh, that existed, let's use England because that seems to make it simplifies the story, even though we ought to be careful to realize that it isn't the whole story. 
prior to the steam engine and factories, uh, there was the putting out system of manufacturers. Yeah, and that was a system um, in which people living in their own homes did small pieces of work. They gathered wool from the sheep. They turned the wool into thread. They, there was all different pieces of the textile, what we now think of as the textile production process that were really, to use the contemporary word, outsourced. And a small merchant would go around and collect uh, the wool and would, would use it to um, you know, sell to somebody else, would make clothes from it. But it was a very small scale and crucially home-based system. So, and I find it so funny to talk about this now as we're all working from home. But this was, you know, in prior days, everyone worked at home. Where the change comes from is once you build a factory, which again, we think of as sort of a, a constant in sort of our economic lives, but it wasn't. Factories were created once you had the machinery that could only go in a factory. Then what happens is that some members of, of society and some members of each family start to leave the home and work in a factory for somebody else with a time whistle and all of the... Um, all of the trappings that go go around being a wage laborer. Yeah, and that's uh, as key that in, in the under the putting out system, people uh, combined working on these things. You know, making thread if that happens to be their piece in it, or weaving, etc. But they also worked on the family farm or farm labor or uh, other organic parts of essentially the family enterprise. That's right. You know, there were no boundaries between home and work. And if you go even to you know, these sort of, you know, historical villages that, that exist today, you see it. You know, the loom was in the corner of the living area next to the hearth. And, you know, you stirred the soup and then you, you worked on the loom. But there really were no boundaries between your work life and your home life. They were the same thing. And then again, in the course of a single person's life, the factories emerge and the entire pace and structure and, and notion of work changes fundamentally. And you point out, which is interesting, a lot of people miss, is that the initial factories were actually populated mostly by the same women and children that were doing the putting out. That's right. And they were sort of seen as being fit for that work because this may have just been an excuse, but their fingers were small. You know, they could, the factories at the early days were sort of local, so people could walk to the factories, work a full day. Um, and in particular, they were sort of the folks who, if you will, were excess laborers in the family. So they were, these were not the mothers, these were young women, you know, women before they became mothers, children as young as, you know, God, they're horrible stories of six years old, but, but they were, they were young people largely women who were working in the factories, in the early factories, and then that shifts as we go into the latter stages of, of the revolution. And that was an era where, you know, essentially most of the people that worked in the factories were, were these women, younger women in particular and children, but some older women too, as I think the data comes out. But then we started to see some changes, uh, you know, the Enclosure Acts in, I just looked it up, the, uh, the Key Enclosure Act in England was 1773, where uh, common lands, where people who were landless could nonetheless make a living with agriculture, uh, started to be uh, taken back by the feudal lords, etc. And so uh, people who had made a living at uh, low-end subsistence farming were uh, basically forced out of that role. Exactly. And you start to get, and again, I think there's some scary echoes to what we're seeing in our, in our own country right now. Um, you start to get excess labor. 
you get people who were subsistence you know, farmers, uh, laborers on these farms, and they can't do that anymore. They've been kicked off the land. Agriculture itself was going through another, if you will, sort of mini revolution. So agriculture was becoming more productive. You know, you start to get steam engines on the plows. So you didn't need as many people to produce uh, you know, enough food for a country. And so you start to get a lot of men without jobs at the moment when the factory economy is really picking up. And so you have this sort of whole demographic of now unemployed, hungry men who want those factory jobs and need those factory jobs. Again, cultural evolution, it could have perhaps gone a different way. Men could have done something else. I'm not quite sure what. <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that other thing, right? It could have been, it could have been massive warfare or something, right? But it was pulled into the industrial revolution and uh, we ended up with the uh, the beginnings by the middle of the 19th century and pretty firmly established by the end, the model of the husband as wage earner and the wife as the person that stays home and takes care of the home. Exactly. And this was not just a cultural shift. It was a legal shift as well. Um, particularly, in, you can you can trace it pretty easily in, in the U.S. and in the U.K., that men actually organized to demand uh, that they get the factory jobs. And you get legislation, and like many legislation, it has multiple motives. Um, you start to get the child protection legislation, you know, which of course is, you know, very sympathetic legislation. Nobody wants a seven-year-old kid working in a factory. Nobody wants a 14-year-old girl having her fingers snapped off by these, these mechanized looms. A lot of the legislation that was couched in the language of being protective of women and children also served to preserve those jobs for men. And you can just, you can see that strand running through the legislation. So by the end of the 19th century, again, particularly in, in the U.S. and the U.K., the factory jobs are reserved for men. Only men can have those jobs. And then, of course, you, you, now you have to, that, that's where I think the culture then responds to that. You start to get this, the, these cultural tropes that define men as the breadwinner, you know, he who works, the, the, the one who goes off in the morning and needs to be taken care of when he comes home. And then the, the counterpoint to that is the little woman, the wife who does stay home and takes care of her man and no longer is out in the, in the family farm because the family farm's disappeared. And instead, the wife is taking care of, of the home and the hearth. And then sort of the, the last piece of this is, even though it was messy and murky and, you know, horrible for many people, people did get richer. You know, this was a time of, of expanding prosperity. And so people's houses get larger. They have more, more stuff. They have more things to take care of. And so the job of taking care of the home becomes a full-time job for women. And, uh, you know, this sort of late Victorian, uh, early Edwardian period, you know, the idea of the housewife, the housefra, you know, became this powerful uh, cultural norm. You have a quote, I'm not sure who it's from, but all those qualities could not be found in the world outside. Gentleness and piety, submissiveness and fragility, chasteness and devotion. That was the uh, uh, the cultural invention, and you know, as we know from our walk through history, this is brand new, basically, in uh, in you know late nineteenth century England and and Western Europe. 
That's exactly right. And you see it, you mentioned it, the Hausfrau in Germany is the sort of the celebration of the bourgeois household. And in the UK, she was frequently referred to as the domestic goddess. And there's this, there's this fascinating little subculture of, of books, these household management books that emerged around this time that really treated householdry as a profession. You know, how do you maintain the perfect linen closet? Um, and, you know, you read them now and it feels like very early stage sort of Martha Stewart. But, but that was new. Um, and, and it was created. And it was a cultural response, I, I'm arguing and others have argued, it was a cultural response to this, this now increasingly entrenched division of labor. So whereas in the Middle Ages, as we were talking earlier, both the man and the wife worked on the family homestead. Now you have a very different social norm where the men leave the house to go to work and the women stay home and tend to that house. And, and I should underscore here that this was the bourgeois sort of elite conception. There were lots of women who were still working. They were the housemaids for the wealthier women. They were still in the factories. Um, they were out scrambling to make money however they could. But even though those women existed in fairly large numbers, the ideal woman, the ideal family, what became the revered as the norm was the housewife. Indeed. And then you mentioned it, alluded to it, I think make it a little bit more clear. Uh, people don't uh, tend to remember that, say, in 1925, a third of the American workforce was in domestic service. Uh, most middle class people uh, actually had a cook or a maid or a driver. It's kind of surprising. And uh, that's kind of faded from our, our cultural memory. And that uh, essentially allowed particularly the more affluent people to be this uh, perfect housewife without having to spend, what was the number you came up with, 65 hours a week of drudgery. On the laundry. Yeah, exactly. Well, this now gets us to our next technological evolution. And I love that you pointed this out. You know, I've thought about it a little bit. Uh, but you've really made it an interesting story uh, that the revolution of home automation was a wedge that changed a lot of things. Yes, I'm trying to restore the the lowly washing machine to its rightful place in history. But, you know, the washing, we all giggle, right? But the washing machine was a revolutionary technology along with the refrigerator and the freezer uh, because women, you know, at the turn of the 20th century spent... 60, 70, 80 hours a week just taking care of the house and the household. I mean, my, uh, my, my husband was born in Greece and, you know, his mother, you know, spent the early years of her life, you know, there, she didn't have a stove. You, you took your bread to, a, to an oven in the village. You know, all of the laundry had to be washed by hand, which those of us who, you know, complain about the modern laundry you should just pause for a second and think about what it took in 1910 and 1915. You had to boil the water. You had to clean these gigormous pots. You had to make your own soap. I mean, it was exhausting. Um, and when the washing machine comes along, it suddenly gives women back hours and hours and hours of their week, um, somewhat less dramatically, but the uh, same was true for um, refrigerators. You know, we, we forget what life was like when you, you couldn't refrigerate food. You know, there's a reason people pickled things. It wasn't just because they liked the taste of pickles. It, it, it preserved the food. You had to make pickles and you had to preserve your green beans and you had to make jam because, because that was how you took care and fed your family. And again, refrigeration changes all of that. And if you look, there's a, some wonderful economists who've done these you know, time analyses. And 
you know, if you look at, you know, roughly between the period, well, let's call it 1910 till, you know, 1950, by the time most houses in the U.S. did have these basic appliances, women got back sort of 30 hours, 40 hours in their week in terms of the pure tasks that they had to do. Yeah. And again, it continued. I mean, think about uh, by 1950, you probably had a refrigerator and a stove, but you uh, you know probably didn't have a dishwasher or you certainly didn't have a microwave and probably had a sewing machine, but might well still have been a treadle. I know my grandmother still had a treadle sewing machine in 1965 and she used it, but even a treadle sewing machine was a giant step up from having to you know, fix all the family, family clothes with a needle and thread. So it was a continuing, uh, you know, revolution, which ended up freeing up, I think you figured 40 hours a week uh, for the housefrau by, say, uh, the late 60s. Right, which is not coincidentally when you start seeing huge numbers of women going into the workforce. And some of that was feminism and changing norms. And we can talk about, you know, the pill obviously was a huge part of this. But part of it was was the washing machine. Yep, indeed. That was, and that, I think you highlighted that more than I've ever seen anybody highlight it before. And I think that is actually extremely interesting. Uh, and I would encourage people who are interested in thinking through how we got to our uh, world where women are now close to equal in rights and are striving towards that and how important uh, those home automation uh, things were. And it's, of course, also interesting to realize, I can remember it in our own family, because uh, I'm just old enough and I grew up where we had a, a ringer washing machine when I was a very little kid. And then we got a fully automated one. We didn't have a dryer, still use clotheslines. And then eventually we got a dryer and then, you know, things slowly. And then I didn't get a dishwasher until I was a teenager. And, you know, so it was just a, a incremental freeing up and uh, seeing my mother become more and more engaged in the outside world. It was really, really an important thing. Before we go to the pill and the real explosion, uh, let's talk about something else that you uh, mentioned, which is not as well remembered as it could be because we're, we, we're, it's so ingrained into how we think, at least here in the West. And that's the car and sexual opening up. Yeah. So, so I mean, I'm sure most people know the, the car was, was a massive technological change. Cars gave people mobility. They built the suburbs. They changed the nature of, of our uh, sort of our geography and our working lives. Uh, but they also gave freedom to a lot of people who didn't have it before. And, and so one of the, the sort of vignettes I tell in the book is prior to the advent of the car, if a young man and young woman wanted to date, the, the young man usually came a calling. You know, and, and the date was he, you know, found some way to get over to the woman's house and they, they sat outside on the family's porch or in the parlor and they didn't have a lot of privacy. And, you know, and it was, it was you know, getting away was not an easy thing. But once you have cars and, and cars, if you go back to that era, once the Ford created the Model T, kind of cars exploded. You know, the spread of the car is not quite akin to the spread of the iPhone, but it's pretty darn close in sort of demographic terms. So once that young man can... Can, can come a calling in his car and he can he can pick the young woman up they leave they escape the prying eyes of the of the family and uh, they can go do whatever the heck they want in that car now clearly there was a huge fear of pregnancy um, but it gave young people freedom and if you go back and you read sort of newspaper articles from the from the teens and the 20s you can see the horror uh, that the older generation had, you know, what are all these young people doing in the cars? 
and they were, they were making out and petting and, and having sex. And once you got cars with roofs on top of them, uh, once you got lovers lanes and, and highway inns, I don't think it's coincidental that the roaring 20s were facilitated by the spread of the car in the 19-teens. So it's an interesting little piece of, of our technological history. Yeah, I made a note to myself, uh, no coincidence, the flappers occurred in the 20s, you know, the first really liberated women in mass. First, there have been, of course, liberated women here and there, historically, some of the great ones. Uh, but there was millions in the 20s, and the car's got to have been part of that. Right. You couldn't have had those speakeasies without cars in which to get to the speakeasies, right? So the car was really facilitating that movement. And so, again, these are both good examples of sort of the macro theme of the coevolution of culture and technology. Uh, you know, the culture draws technology forth, and then it also provides, you know, a way to change culture. And then the new culture pulls forth other technologies, and off it goes. And I was just uh, pondering it a little bit when I was reading the book, and it actually maybe answered a question I've always had, interestingly. You know, the car. Uh, when I was a, a lad, when I turned 16, and what would, what would that have been? 19, uh, ba -da -ba -da, 68. And in those days, you got the car, you got your driver's license as soon as you possibly could, right? I got mine two days after my birthday, only because my birthday was on Saturday, right? Uh, and, you know, it was just ferocious libido, quite literally, to have a car. And, you know, part of the reason was that, uh, that freedom, that ability to date, uh, you know, you know, in a realistic way, not these little stylized dates that were arranged with the parents, all that sort of crap. Uh, and, and then one thing led to another, as you say. And but now today, and I would say starting around 2000, saw a lot less of that libido in the young male for the driver's license in the car. And I just had the aha that well, think about the coevolution. Women went back to work, so the house was vacant in the afternoon. Hmm. Uh, uh, and <laughs> yes. so huh, just doing very simple agent-based modeling, I suspect you'd see the libido for driver's license, which is sort of expensive. You know, insurance, I remember insurance cost a lot. I had to go get a job so I could afford the insurance when I was 16. And, uh, you, know, there, you know, there's a lot of negatives to owning and operating a car. And if you have an alternative method, uh, like the, the family home, where everybody's at work, at least at the margin, and we know everything happens at the margin, uh, the libido for the car goes down. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And that's also probably a case of, of where the, these loops come into play. So, you know, by the 1980s, let's say, the social mores have also changed to the to the point where, you know, the parents, you know, I was a parent in the, in the 1990s, I was totally fine with my kids having, you know, friends over in their bedrooms, you know, it, the social mores had changed. Um, and in large part, and this, this goes back to, to the pill, that the fear of pregnancy was no longer this kind of incredible weight over the heads of, of both young men and young women, not to mention their parents. Yeah, but yeah, let's go to that now, the pill. That's the next big one in your tale. Uh, it had an interesting history of how it happened to come, come about when it did. Yeah, and just to kind of underscore, you know, as with the washing machine, I think, you know, so often we, you know, we don't think of washing machines or contraception as technology because we think of technology as being machines. And, you know, that's the word I use in my title, too. But the pill is absolutely a, a technology. And it was arguably, and I would argue, one of the most important technologies of the 20th century because it changed not only the means of production, but crucially the means of reproduction. 
and you know there's a long and complicated history you know women and to some you know smaller numbers of men have been trying to come up with contraceptives for thousands of years um, and they've always, or, you know, they've gone through long periods of time where particularly religious authorities just kind of slapped them down. And it, the, the religious opposition to contraception became particularly strong during the Victorian period when it's sort of corresponded with this adoration again of the domestic goddess, the good woman, the virtuous woman. In the sort of mid 20th century, particularly as people also got more interested in understanding infertility there was increased understanding of what actually enables conception and what, what can get in the way of, of conception. And it's a lot of the early work on the pill, a lot of the early research came from a sort of deeply conflicted Catholic scientist who was working on fertility. But in the, the course of trying to figure out what, how to help women get pregnant, he also stumbled on the sort of endocrinological causes of, of infertility, but also the flip of that, which was um, how you could prevent conception. Um, but the actual sort of commercial impetus for the pill came from the largesse of one woman who was a, an heiress, or, or she had married into a family fortune, but tragically her husband uh, suffered from schizophrenia and very bad schizophrenia. And she desperately didn't want to become pregnant because she didn't want to run the risk of passing the schizophrenia on to any offspring. So she, um, she used her husband's money uh, after he died to fund research into contraception. And uh, she was very smart and I think quite lucky. She threw money at a, a gentleman named Gregory Pincus, who was sort of an obscure uh, researcher who had been kind of kicked out of mainstream scientific research. But, but he was working on, on this research, and she funded him. And he came up with the precursor to the pill quite quickly. Uh, it was then picked up by a larger scale manufacturer. And uh, the pill became, it wasn't called pill, it just then, but it became known as the pill very quickly, became the single most successful pharmaceutical product ever introduced, um, which is particularly fascinating because everybody was, was sort of lying about what it was. So doctors were not prescribing contraception. They were giving married women, you know, something to ease the pains of their period or, you know, they, they called it all kinds of different things rather than what it was, which was contraception. Well, I would say by 1968, when I sort of got out into the world and at you know, in that age, yeah, people pretty much were pretty clear what the pill was about, right? Yeah, and 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 that was within five years of its development. I mean, the speed at which the pill was widely adopted is unprecedented. Yeah, that job I got to pay for my car insurance was actually a delivery boy for the local drugstore, and it talk about shocking how many of our prescriptions were birth control pills. I had no idea. You saw this up close and personal. Without a doubt, number one, right? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's easy, you know, to sort of look back at that moment and, and giggle. But it was huge, you know, not just for teenagers who wanted to have sex, but for women who just couldn't afford physically or emotionally and financially to have any more children. Um, you know, for people who who wanted to, you know, a lot of them were married women who didn't want to have children yet or or wanted to start their career. So this was life changing for women um, and for the men in their lives as well. Yeah, huge. But particularly for the women, you know, I grew, you know, grew up in a working class uh, community where lots of women had five, six, seven, eight, nine kids. Right. And 
I don't, I don't imagine very many of them actually wanted that many kids, right? And the, the ability to control one's fertility was gigantic. I think you hit on it that this pill plus the related sexual liberation uh, was the biggest thing for the 20th century. I'd say this all the time, that when we look back a thousand years from now at the 20th century, it won't be World War II, it won't be nuclear weapons, it won't be uh, going to the moon, and it won't be the internet that is the number one thing. It'll be the beginning of real women's liberation around 1975 when it you know finally got real power and momentum as a cultural uh, phenomenon that basically overturns 10,000 years of history of the patriarchy. And so, and, and, and these things all flow to it. And I think it's, without being too grandiose, I think it's even bigger than that because it's not just women's liberation or, or, or shifts in, in sort of the power dimensions between men and women. It's really changing reproduction. The most basic thing about humans is that we reproduce. Like, all, you know, that's what we do as a species. And we have reproduced the same way forever. But starting with the pill and combining that with advances in reproductive technologies, we are now reproducing in different ways. And we're in the, you know, the early phases of that. But that's perhaps the biggest technological change that as a species we will go through because that, that's the most basic thing we do. And if you compare changes in reproduction to the internet, you know, <laughs> what's Twitter <laughs> compared, compared to IVF? That's my next topic, actually, is the, you know, the next set of evolutions of technology and the interaction with mating and life and reproduction is uh, kind of the combination of IVR first and then frozen eggs, sperm banks, et cetera. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I do think, as I just said, that the reproductive revolution is one of the most important uh, of this moment in time. And it's a very new revolution, uh, has several chapters. But really, the, the sort of the first breakthrough was, was realizing that you could use artificial insemination to enable a woman to become pregnant. Now, folks do that all the time these days. We don't even think about it as a technology, but that was a really big deal when people first figured out how to do this. The idea that you could impregnate a woman through means other than sex. Again, just pause on that for a second. You know, we've been producing sexually forever. Um, but now if you can get a woman pregnant without sex, that is a huge change in really the nature of, of our humanity. But artificial insemination just mechanically is pretty easy. Um, it doesn't involve an awful lot of technology. Baster, turkey baster, right? I know, I know. It's, it is what it is. Um, but the big technological shift that comes after that, of course, is the creation of in vitro fertilization. Again, that's only, you know, that's less than a generation ago. But this kind of captured the imagination and the horror of the world, the idea that you could take an egg and a sperm outside the human body mate them, wasn't actually mated in a test tube, despite the you know, people referring to it as test tube babies, mate them in a Petri dish, put the resulting embryo back into a woman's body, and wait nine months and you get a perfectly healthy, perfectly normal baby. You know, this was revolutionary. At the time IVF uh, first was announced with the birth of, of Louise Brown, the world's first test tube baby, people went nuts. This was seen as, you know, interference with mother nature, playing God, the creation of, you know, robo babies. People were aghast. 
until about two or three years later, they weren't anymore. And now people really, most people, regardless of religion, think nothing of turning to IVF if they want to have children and are unable to create them uh, the old-fashioned way. Something like 3 to 4% of all babies in the United States are born now through IVF. If you look at uh, places like Israel and Scandinavia, uh, where there's more public support in, in terms of just you know financial uh, healthcare support, uh, the numbers are about 6 or 7%. And in my humble prediction, they're only going to grow. And so increasingly, we're going to see people turning to IVF, not just because they've, they've tried sex for years and it's not working, but because IVF is actually more predictable. Uh, if you combine IVF with what's called pre-implantation genetic testing, you can also select embryos such that they won't carry particular genetic mutations, uh, somewhat scarier, so that they will have certain genetic characteristics like gender or um, hair color. People are much more likely to select for gender than for hair color. But you know, just keep moving down this slippery slope here, and you start to move into a world where we think of reproducing non-sexually as, as a more and more commonplace option. Indeed. And there are some, you know, strike to me, uh, significant questions. You know, uh, as we talk about the genetic screening uh, at the vitro fertilization, essentially we're talking about bottom-up eugenics, right? The, you know, the prejudices we have in our society are going to be amplified via this capability. Uh, you know, we, we see something very analogous, though not necessarily using the same technology, uh, with the uh, amazing amount of uh, differential abortions between males and females in places like India and China. Uh, you know, who knows? We may see uh, curly, dark hair go away. <laughs> God, I hope not as someone who has curly, dark hair. You know, I... <laughs> One could see that the cultural prejudice for straight blonde hair, uh, you run that number over 200 years and, you know, seven generations of children, uh, you know, I have some concerns about that. So let me let me let me push back on, on on a lot of what you've just said. So first of all, I'm I'm very careful about using the word eugenics. The original eugenics movement was a horrible, horrible thing. It was horrible as it was started in the United States, and obviously way worse as it was picked up and and adopted by the Nazis. Nobody wants to go to eugenics, um, and I don't think what we're seeing now is is eugenics of any sort. I think it, it raises some serious questions, um, but I think these are questions that we can understand through research and then we can address through regulation, much as the United States doesn't like regulation. But if you look, and we actually have a lot of data here, and particularly data around artificial insemination, because that's the part of this market that's been around, and it is a market, that's the part of this market that's been around the longest. And if you look at what people choose when they're buying sperm, and that's what they do, in fact, they don't overwhelmingly choose for, for blonde hair, blue eyes. What they choose, again, I say this as someone with curly dark hair, is they choose for characteristics that look more or less like the child they would have produced through sexual means. So most people with curly dark hair, in fact, don't choose blonde, blue-eyed donors. They may choose somebody, you know, who looks like they have better behaved curly dark hair. Um, almost everybody chooses taller rather than shorter. But if you have a single person or a couple and they, they tend to be, let's say they're very, they're very small, they, they don't select super tall donors. 
Um, so when I look at the data I've been able to see from how people choose both sperm donors and egg donors, I bizarrely become optimistic because I see people choosing the characteristics that they have and that are shared with those they love rather than some kind of Teutonic ideal. Now, I think we have to watch out for it. Um, for sure, we need to look at uh, gender, you know, whether we're getting massive gender asymmetries. But again, if you look at the history, and it's harder to get data in the U.S. because we don't hold on to all this data, but it doesn't appear that we're getting overwhelming numbers of people choosing boy children over girl children. In fact, a lot of what we're getting is couples or individuals who've, you know, had a couple of boys and they really want a girl or vice versa. But you're not seeing anything yet that makes me at least super scared. That's encouraging, uh, though I wonder, per your theme of the loop, uh, this technology now exists and will get continually better. You know, uh, how will that the ability to choose one's offspring, particularly if you're affluent, uh, you know, drive our culture? Will it be uh, on the superficials like hair or eye color, or will it be on personality? Uh, will it be on IQ, or you know, the rich start getting smarter because they can? Uh, you know, will it be on talent? And all those things will become possible over the next few years. But the first thing we're seeing, and, and we are starting to see this, you know, in, in large-scale data, people are choosing against disease. So we are seeing the number of children born with Down syndrome is plummeting. The number of children born with Tay-Sachs is plummeting. And, and I know that Down syndrome, there's an interesting piece in The Atlantic recently, Down syndrome is, is complicated and controversial and, and, and people worry about, you know, if we manage to wipe out Down syndrome, will that, you know, cause there to be more discrimination against people who do have Down syndrome? So I think that's a real issue. But Tay-Sachs is kind of the cleanest case. You know, Tay-Sachs, as most people know, is an inherited disease that inevitably kills the child before the age of five. I don't see anything wrong with getting rid of Tay-Sachs in the population. I, I just don't. And so insofar as people are using this to, to not have children with Tay-Sachs, to not have children with cystic fibrosis, I can only see that as a good thing. Um, there's a very interesting example, and, and you might, this example is a couple years old now, so it, it may have changed. But last time I looked, the United Kingdom, in this sort of very British way, has a, has a very good regulatory system where every time there's an advance in these technologies, they kind of sit down and they look at it and they send it out for public appeal and they sort of consider what to do. And um, they did one of these considerations around the BRCA gene. So the BRCA gene is, is a gene that predisposes women with it to, uh, you know, uh, to breast cancer. It's not going to kill them. It gives them a higher likelihood of developing breast cancer, which may or may not kill them over the course of their life. The British had to decide whether to enable, to allow people to screen for BRCA uh, through genetic testing. They decided to allow it, and then nobody used it. Because it turned out that parents, would-be parents, weren't comfortable screening against something that might or might not prove dangerous. So I, I, have, I have more comfort in how people use these technologies. You know, again, do we worry about rich people screening for intelligence? Absolutely. But I actually worry more about rich people, you know, using their status to get their kids into Ivy League schools 
or rich people, you know, cheating on the SATs or rich people hiring tutors that poor people can't. I mean, we already have these deep-seated asymmetries, and that's a much more efficient way than trying to guess what genes will make your kid more intelligent because we're not even close to figuring those out yet. Yeah, that's, uh, that's hopeful. That's hopeful. Now, another, another one that I sort of thought of as uh, a negative, and uh, you know, you, you basically confess to a Marxist lens on uh, for some of your analysis, uh, is surrogacy, uh, which is obviously on the rise with uh, the use of these new technologies. From a Marxian perspective, it's hard to think of a, uh, anything more exploitive and alienating than being a surrogate mother. Yeah, so surrogacy is, in my opinion, surrogacy is the one where I have the the most problems because you can, and and feminists and Marxists kind of disagree amongst themselves on the question of surrogacy. Uh, There is a famous Marxist feminist named uh, Shulamith Firestone who actually saw reproductive technologies, including surrogacy, as what would free women because it gives women complete control over their bodies, whether to sort of use them for birth labor or sell them for birth labor. Um, And yet there's probably more Marxist feminists who uh, would agree with, with your point that this is just the worst exploitation possible. I think there are ways under which surrogacy can be okay um, for gay men hoping to have a child. uh, Surrogacy is one of the few options open to them. And I think those men should have the option of being able to to give birth, you know, or, or participate in the birth of, of their child. But I would want to only enable or allow surrogacy in ways that were fully protective of the rights and the health of the surrogate. And we don't have that right now. So I would rather see a situation in which we sort of allow for surrogacy, but we we make sure that the woman has, you know, health taken care of, insurance is covering her medical issues, and that the legal environment around surrogacy is very clean. Right now, it's totally murky. And so you get these horrible cases of, you know, the contracting parents deciding they don't want a child and the surrogate is left with this baby, or the surrogate decides she wants to keep the child and you fight. So at at the moment, it's just a mess. There's some good that comes from it. One of my uh, friends, a uh, gay man. He, uh, a couple of years ago, had a baby entirely by, uh, he didn't even have a partner at the time. Uh, you know, the sperm, you know, actually, was, I guess it was his own sperm, but yeah, egg bank and then a surrogate and all that. And the lovely, lovely improvement in his life by having this uh, lovely baby. And it was really wonderful that this could happen in our time and couldn't have happened before. Uh, but and as you point out, the uh, there's definitely a lot of room for abuse, and maybe we can think hard about this as a society. Now let's move on to the next uh, intersection of technology and how we live, love, and work, which is online dating. <laughs> People say that the uh, you know that the uh, the AIs are going to take over. I like to point out, well, the AIs are already. Uh, telling us who to date. Uh, the AIs are already diverting our evolutionary history. How about that, people? That's right. The AIs have replaced the Yendas. Yeah, so it's. I find it so ironic. So I, I finished this book, obviously, finished writing it uh, before COVID hit. But the, some of this stuff has brought in, been brought into such relief by COVID. So online dating is the only way to date right now, so far as I know. Um, so anyone who's dating right now is, is dating online. So if we, are, we were already on a trajectory where 
Tinder and Bumble and all of these were going to become the dominant forms of, of meeting people, you know, that, that we just accelerated that trend massively. And, you know, I'm always cautious when I talk about this topic, being a woman of a certain age, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of sort of looking at the younger generation and saying, tisk tisk tisk, they should do things the way my generation did things. Because I, I don't think these technologies are, are necessarily bad. I don't think they're bad at all. But I do think they have some risks. And I think we need to talk about the risks and, and think about what the implications are likely to be. And I, it, you alluded to, to, to one of the risks earlier. I think there's, there's sort of two, two things I worry about with the increased use of these technologies. The first is that we don't yet fully understand how the human brain works when it's surrounded by choice. You know, so back in the, you know, the bad old days when you and I were growing up, you know, your dating possibilities were limited to the people in your, you know, your high school and then your college or your church group. But, you know, it was a finite group of people. You knew most of them. And so, you know, you had your, you know, you could pick and choose, but it, it wasn't infinite. Um, now, when you're, you know, particularly if you're in a, a large uh, urban area, you can go on your phone and you can you can go through thousands of options and you know there will be another thousand tomorrow and a thousand after that maybe not a thousand for everybody but you know it's a, it's it, what what feels like a virtually infinite number of choices and we know from psychological research into other kinds of choice that people get overwhelmed by choice and, and the the research i cite in the book has to do with jam when you go into the store, if, if there's a, a table set up and there's four different kinds of jam being offered, you'll stop and you'll taste and you'll probably walk away buying one form of jam. But if that same table has 14 kinds of jam, you just walk by. It's just too much. You don't want to try 14 kinds of jam. We're starting to see that with online dating, that because there's so much choice, particularly for people who are deemed attractive on these apps, it's much harder for people to commit. And there's, you know, lots and lots of anecdotes for people who are sitting in a bar when we could still go to bars and they're, they're on an actual date with an actual human being. But while they're on that date, they're scrolling through their phone to see who else better is out there. And that scares me. The other risk out there is that we do know that these apps work very asymmetrically. They're not designed to do it. It's just what happens is that some people are deemed attractive and some people are deemed unattractive. And so whereas in the, you know, the old days of the village Yenta, everybody ultimately got matched up and everybody got married off and had sex and they may not have been in love and they may not have had great sex, but, but, but they had access to a relationship and to sex. On the dating apps, some people get left out, largely men who are deemed unattractive. And those men now don't have access to relationships or sex. And at the fringe of society, they, they become the incels. And I don't want to, you know, be overly sympathetic to the incels because they're, they're not a very sympathetic bunch. Um, but I think the, the fact that we have a growing portion of our society that is being cut out of romantic and sexual relationships is something to worry about. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I know you did in the book, but it's one of the things that, uh, at least conceptually, and from what I, you know, constantly reading these articles about online dating, and that, you know, even though most people don't confront that, that seems to be a trend that, particularly for men, it's very asymmetrical and uh, kind of contrary to the, you know, the innovation of the Greeks and the Romans, where they insisted on one mate per per person, at least legal mate, uh, with the uh, with the result that most men had some skin in the game. you know, what happens in a society, you know, where you go to where, you know, I'm a deer hunter, for instance. And so I know a fair amount about the life cycle of deer, uh, where uh, most of uh, the deer are fathered by a tiny percentage of the males, 16% of the males uh, impregnate essentially all of the deer each year. And uh, what happens if we go that far or I probably won't, but even if it's 30%, if 30% of uh, men, particularly young men, when they can be violent and dangerous, are uh, basically out of the out of the mating game, that uh, that's, could be a prescription for explosion. No, I think that's right. And, you know, I, I think it's an important, albeit uncomfortable, argument to make. You know, sometimes, particularly, you know, older people looking at the dating apps, they sort of worry that, oh, my gosh, people are having sex all the time. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is, in fact, the reverse. And if you combine it with one of the other chapters in the book with the deindustrialization of what was once the industrial world, there's an overlap. So one of the things that really defines, sadly, attractiveness for men is wealth. Women don't want to date unemployed men. And we are potentially looking at a situation in the not distant future where we have large numbers of men who don't have jobs who don't have prospects of jobs, who partly as a result don't have the prospect of a sexual or romantic relationship, this is a prescription for disaster. Um, Because societally, you know, lonely, unemployed men are not what you want to have in a country. They revert to fascism. They revert to nationalism. They revert to violence. and, And that really worries me a lot. As you say, unanticipated consequence. Of course, this happens again and again on the internet. You know, uh, I helped build the pre-internet and then the internet itself, and we thought we were doing good work for everybody. More choice, more better civics, better democracy, right? Well, that doesn't always work out that way. Uh, but one of the things we have found is that as you get transparency in markets, you end up with uh, bigger winners and more losers. And these dating ones, particularly these highly visual ones like, uh, what's it, Tinder, where people swipe left, swipe left, swipe right. I've never actually seen the damn thing, but I could imagine that being hypertrophic uh, in the area of asymmetry. It is. It, it really prioritizes for men, wealth, uh, good looks, <laughs> and, and height. Uh, whereas... Uh, Sadly, it's not all that surprising. It turns out when men, I'm talking the heterosexual relationships here, when men are on Tinder looking for women, they're not very discriminating. Well, there's a real surprise, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> women are more discriminating and they, they swipe right far less frequently. But that does may, mean that for men who are deemed unattractive, there's just no one swiping right on them and they do get left out. Well, anecdotally, apparently that's a pretty long tail. You know, you read the articles in Atlantic Magazine and stuff, seemingly fairly reasonable looking guys uh, say, hey, I was on Tinder in two weeks and got one swipe, right? And you can imagine the, you know, the real winners, you know, have as much as they, as much as they want, basically. 
and you know culturally it's dangerous, but also genetically it may be dangerous, right? If it turns out that the uh, parenting, this also applies to sperm banks, right? Uh, uh, that if we start to highly concentrate our uh, genetic heritage, particularly on the male side, where it's easier and less expensive than on the female, though, of course, now with egg banks, it's possible on the f- female side too, uh, we're skewing our genetic future in a very major way. Yeah. And I mean, just to be somewhat cautious here, you know, at the moment, the numbers are still so low that it's not going to have any effect on population genetics, but over time it will. Um, and and, and it, as more and more people start to turn to these technologies rather than producing children the old-fashioned way, that's the point at which you start to really worry about, gosh, you know, what, what happens if we become like the deer and 16% of the men are fathering 100% of the children? That, that's something to worry about. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. That's uh, We have lots of other interesting topics uh, in the book, including uh, one I didn't know about called in vitro gametogenesis, where you can have a baby with multiple parents. And it's not bullshit. It's real, right? Yes. Not yet possible, but emerging. Yeah, some very interesting things about uh, gender reassignment, particularly the Netherlands protocol, the growth of non-binary in terms of uh, gender identification, lots of really other interesting things in the book. I wish we'd had time to get to them, but we can only do so much in 90 minutes. So Deborah, I'd like to thank you for a really wonderful session and a great book. And I should mention to the, to the folks uh, that the book is relatively short and very nicely written. It's very accessible. Uh, so anyone that has any interest in these topics, I would uh, you know, strongly encourage them to buy the book. Give me the title again. Thanks very much. The book is called Work, Mate, Marry, Love. How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. All right. Thank you, Deborah. This was great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.